Everybody else was whistling too, right? I didn't even know I was doing all of a sudden. I looked up and I was like, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start with a verse that we've looked at the last two weeks. We're going to kind of pick up there again and kind of let it be uh, maybe our text, core text, if you will, for the whole series. Um, and then we'll go into some different things this morning. Um, I do have to say, just make a note of saying, uh, his love is fierce. Amen. Uh, there's a part in that song that I just, I'm always amazed with. You chase me down. You seek me out. Remember, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. I don't know what happens in our Christian life where all of a sudden we think somehow that, that God should be just thankful that I let him save me. Like, like God, you're welcome for letting me, you know, allow you to bring me into your kingdom. I mean, we've got to remember, we were undone sinners separated, cut off enemies of God in our sin. And he chased after you. He pursued you when there was nothing in you worth pursuing. He chased after you because of his love for you and his desire to glorify himself. It superseded the sin in you and he pursued you. But here's the reality. His love is fierce. But the love that pursues, the love that seeks after, the love that chases after you, and offers you the call of salvation, it's at that point that that love is limited in the sense that now you must either receive or reject. And if you receive his love, Romans chapter 8 says that now we are ushered into a different type of love from God. It's this, it's this childlike love. It's a son and daughter love. And that is a love that can never be taken away. But the love of John 3.16 where he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, it's a general call. All of humanity is offered salvation, but we must decide what are we going to do in response to that call. His love is fierce and it pursues you. I pray that you, if you don't know Christ, would turn from your sin, receive the love of Christ, the gift of salvation, and find what his love really is. It's, it's peace and it's joy and it's fullness. It's just everything you can ever imagine, every longing and desire met in Christ. Uh, it's an amazing relationship. And so as we kind of think on the love of Christ, I want to continue where we left off last week and the week before that in our series of relationship goals. We are in week three of our series. We have this week and next week. And we uh, ended last week about halfway through the message. So I'll give you the, the second half kind of of the message from last week. And then we're going to get into the, the goal for this week. And so we're going to kind of combine that all into one. So it's 11.05. And I told Sandra last night, you can even, I'm, I don't, some people wonder, I wonder if people wonder this. Does he really, does he really do all the stuff he says he does when he's at the pulpit? Does he really say all the stuff that he says he says? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And uh, I don't know how God has given me the grace to still be married this long, but he has, and so we praise God for that. Uh, but I looked at Sandra last night, and I was going through my iPad just reviewing my notes, and I said, well, I'm at four full pages of notes on my iPad. And I said, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work. And she said, oh, you'll, you'll do it. You'll be fine. I said, Sandra, I only got halfway through my sermon last week, and I only had three and a half pages last week. So I don't know how you think I can do it this week, but here we go. We'll give it, we'll give it a try. We want to set some goals for our relationships and our marriages that will bring about the glory of the Lord and blessings to others. Our goals that we are setting are to have marriages that are, and here's kind of the four goals that I encourage us to set 
uh, Christ-centered, mission-driven, devil-beating, covenant-keeping. And so we've talked about Christ-centered. We started talking about mission-driven last week. We'll finish that. We'll get into devil-beating this morning. And then next week we'll get into covenant-keeping, covenant-keeping. Our foundation as a Christ-centered marriage, as we talked about last week, is not happiness, it's unity. Our foundation as a Christ-centered marriage, and really a healthy relationship with anyone, if you really think about it, is to strive to be Christ-centered in that relationship. If the person's an unbeliever, obviously they cannot have that mindset. But as you pursue that relationship, whether it be in your workplace, whether it be a friend, whether it be a family member, if you will desire Christ-likeness in your aspect, your end of the relationship, you will see great fruit from that, even though the other person may not respond the way you would like them to. Because here's the beauty of it. When I'm Christ-centered and Christ-focused in the relationship, whether the other person reciprocates that or not, returns that or not, I have peace because I'm Christ-centered. Somebody can, at work, can just treat me like just, just garbage, and it hurts, and it's not right, it's not okay, but if I'm Christ-centered, I realize, man, there's something so much greater here that's going on. I, like, my, my reward is in heaven. I don't need to worry about getting vengeance this side of heaven. I'm, God is just, and God will handle all of this. I don't have to worry about that. I'm free from those things that usually will corrupt and just pollute a relationship. But in marriage, specifically, We strive to be Christ-centered. As a Christ-centered marriage, it's not happiness that is our foundation. It's unity. We've read this verse for a couple weeks now. I want to read it again. Genesis 2 and 24. Genesis 2 and 24. Therefore, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. One flesh flesh. We talked about this last couple weeks. It is not happiness that is the foundation of our marriages. It's unity. It's oneness in the marriage. And I'm going to ask that we would pray and ask God to unpack all of this to us, that we would leave here today closer to him and Christ-centered in our relationships. Father, we ask that you would lead, guide, and direct in all that is said and done. We pray, Father, that you would bless your word as we know it will never return void. We pray that you would, Holy Spirit, apply these words to our hearts and to our minds and that we would see them lived out in our lives. And Father, again, I have to say that if there's somebody here that is in a marriage where the spouse is not a believer, that they don't know Christ, Lord, I I know it's difficult for them to walk that road. I know it's discouraging. I know it can be frustrating. When somebody you're married with doesn't share in your values, doesn't share in the same lifestyle as far as thinking about how their life and their marriage should look. But Father, I pray that you would comfort that individual this morning, that they would know that, that, that you, you are most likely and, and very much will continue to work through the spouse that knows Christ, through the prayers of that spouse. And Lord, I'm not saying that you make someone get saved, but I do believe, Lord, that because the believer in the marriage pursuing you and, and living out Christ-likeness, not with perfection, but just, just living Christ, that you're using that to minister to the one that doesn't know Christ. Now, Father, it's still their choice. They have a responsibility of them, their, their individuality. They have to choose to respond to Christ. But, but I believe you're working in that situation. So I pray that 
that the one that's here that has a believer or has a spouse that isn't a believer, that they would know that you are at work and that they can't control their spouse. They can't make anything happen, but they can pray for them and they can live in a way that reflects you. And I pray that you would use that to make a difference in that relationship. Father, for the ones here that are joined in marriage and both are believers, I pray that you would allow us to continue to know that it's a unity in Christ that holds us together, that happiness is circumstantial, that situations are circumstantial and temporal. They won't last forever. Finances are temporal. But the unity we have in Christ, that's what will hold us together. And so, Father, thank you for all of this. Open up our hearts and minds to what you have for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are united with each other before God. We are united before God with one another. Now, we acknowledge that we make the choice who we will marry. So we said that a few weeks ago. We have to acknowledge this. We make the choice who we will marry, okay? And again, when you look at even this example, God brings Eve to Adam. God has made it known to Adam it's good to not be alone. But Adam has to make the choice. Adam is the one that says, okay, I see what God has done here, and I agree with God that this is what's going to take place, that Eve is now my one, one flesh. We are one. But a lot of times, like I said, in Christianity today, we have this mindset that, that like, that you got to find that perfect person, right? Like the, 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 every person has a perfect mate, in, like divinely inspired by God. And, like, and what ends up happening is if that doesn't work out, then that person can say, well, God, why'd you do this to me? God, why did you give me that person? God, that obviously wasn't the one. Also, think about it practically this way. Let's say you start dating someone that you think is the one, and then you find out six months later, a year later after dating them, they're not the one. Well, then you find another one who you think is the one, and then you find out they're not the one. And then you get another, well, they could be the one, and, but you're kind of discouraged at this point because none have been the one, and you're like, I don't know which one the one is. And we get so frustrated, but here's the problem with that. The minute you say, I'm looking for the right one, you've made a, a huge error. We're really looking for the right two, right? Now, I know what we mean when we say the right one. I get that. But remember what we said a few weeks ago. Christ is my number one. He's my everything. I don't need to find this perfect mate, right, this hallmark story come true, okay? I don't need that because I have Christ, now, here's the thing, though. God's Word gives us a lot of information about what to look for in a spouse. That as a, as a godly woman, hey, here's some characteristics that should be evident in the man you want to marry. Hey, hey, men who are seeking Christ and honoring God, here's some characteristics you should look for in a woman that you'd like to marry. And number one of those things is, do they even know Christ? I'm always amazed when I was doing youth ministry and I would... A student would come to me and say, oh, yeah, I'm dating so-and-so at school. And I would always ask the same thing, and they'd get so annoyed. I had two questions I would always ask if it was a guy student. If it was a girl and she said, I'm dating so-and-so, I'd say, ah, mm, nope, time out. That's a Sandra thing. I don't want to know. Don't talk to me about that stuff. I don't want to hear it, okay? Because uh, there were some girls in our youth ministry that we had had in our youth ministry for so many years, we kind of called them like our adopted daughters. And they actually, they wouldn't come to me. Those ones would never come to me and say they were dating somebody because I always had the same response. I want his name, his phone number, his uh, address. Uh, what is his parents' name? Where does he go to school? What grade is he in? What's he want to do with his life? Like, and they would just be like, okay, I'm talking to Sandra from now on, okay? But the first question I would ask every guy that would come to me and say I'm dating somebody is, do, do they know Christ? Are they saved? 
And you'd be, I mean, so many of these Christian guys would go, I don't know. But you're dating her. Well, yeah. That hasn't come up yet? That should probably come up soon. The other question I would ask is, what color are her eyes? And all the men in here would know why I asked that question, because where are you looking? That's the point I'm making. So, and there it is. The joke, it moves through the auditorium like a slow wave back. What color are her eyes? And if you're a woman here and you don't get that, just ask your husband and he'll explain it to you later. Okay. Um, When we look at this idea here, this oneness, we understand we choose who we marry, but we are united in God, before God. When we understand this, however, what God unites, others seek to divide. What God unites, others seek to divide. We talked about this last week. We live in a world that is quick to divide. If things get tough or not going the way we want, we just quit. To be honest, we have made giving up on a marriage way too easy. And we unpacked all of that last week. I won't review all of that. But the reality is in our world today, we have made giving up on marriage way too easy. In five minutes, a judge can just completely separate and destroy a marriage that God united. And I've shared this before, but it was the saddest thing I've ever experienced in my life. I went with someone who got saved during a divorce proceedings. He was, the divorce was already final, or I mean, in the works. He had to go to the, the court And uh, he had gotten saved, tried to make it work, but he was a really, uh, and I I never encouraged divorce, but as far as husbands go, he wasn't really a great husband. Lots and lots and lots of mistakes. Came to Christ. His wife was an unbeliever. He came and said, I want to make it work. And she said, nope, been there, done that. And so the divorce was going through. And so he approached me and Pastor Keith and said, this was years ago, and said, would you go with me to the court and just sit with me? I don't have any family or friends to sit. Would you just go sit with me? We said, sure. So we get there, and I don't know if this is normally how it is, Shane, but apparently things don't always happen when they're supposed to in a courtroom. I don't know if that was, the schedule was off. We sat there for like 50 minutes just waiting for this guy to get his his thing, like 45 minutes later than it was supposed to be. So we're sitting there. Well, while this is happening, just case after case is coming up, and divorce after divorce, divorce. I mean, and it was the saddest 50 minutes of my life. I was just, oh, oh, boom, done, boom, done, boom, done, marriage after marriage. I just was like, oh. This is our culture. Like, it's just this quick, man. It's just done. 25 years, 30 years, boom, done, boom, done, boom, done. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, Lord, this is our world today. We're so quick to just divide and be done. We've made it too easy. And again, I said it last week. I know that not every situation is that way. I know that you may be here in a whole different life situation where you tried to make it work. You put the work in, and it wasn't you that made the choice, or you were a victim of circumstance. Or maybe you made the choice and you look back and you regret it. I understand we're all in different situations at this point in life. And so it's not about condemnation. It's about where you are now moving forward. Well, I put in the work that's required to make this thing work because God is about restoration, not division in a marriage. In our world, other people, media, and even our enemy Satan will all want us to think that the grass is greener on the other side, that we should just break it off because we can have more fun not being tied down. I mean, that's really the dream, right? Just go have as many relationships as possible. That's what it's all about. The truth is, if you are looking over the fence and thinking the grass is greener, that really just means it's time to water your own lawn, right? We said this last week. If you're looking over the fence and the grass is greener on the other side, then that means your grass needs to be watered. Amos 3.3 says this, Can two walk together except they be agreed? We talked about last week that even though the world and our enemy wants to divide, we need to be united in Christ. 
Can two walk together except they be agreed? That word together is key. That word together actually means unitedly. I know that's not the best way to say that, but that's what the word really translates to. Unitedly. We're walking in union. We're united with one another. We need to get into some new stuff this morning so we can get out of here on time. Unity. I know many of us have crockpots and going or things like that. Unity doesn't mean the same. It means you're together. Isn't that what we just read? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Unity doesn't mean the same. It means you're together. Side note real quick. I was asked if I should do this. I was like, I don't know. Maybe I won't do it. I'll do it real quick. Does anyone notice anything different about the stage? Raise your hand if you've noticed something different about the stage. Kathy has to put her hand down because she's like inside. She's been on the stage a lot. If you're in the praise band, don't raise your hand because you're on the stage a lot. Okay, anyone who's not in praise band, notice something different about the stage, raise your hand. Okay, okay. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? Everything looks the exact same. Okay, this is an amazing little social experiment. I like this, okay? Some of you may notice behind me there used to be two sets of risers on the back of the stage. Guys, remember that now? They're gone now. So we took those out. We opened up our whole stage. Somebody said, I actually, when we were doing this this Thursday, I want to thank those that helped in this, by the way. There were some men that came in and actually did all the hard work of tearing it all apart, taking it out and making it look nice. I want to thank them. But we were talking about that, and I said, you know, I wonder if anyone's going to come in Sunday and not even notice. And someone said, well, what you should do is don't say anything until the message gets going, and they're all looking up there. And then you can ask, does anyone notice? If you're wondering why we did it, it was really just to give us more stage space, give us more flexibility with plays and productions. Uh, If you guys remember, we have to have the scenery walls so far forward because of the risers mess everything up. So now we can actually do productions and things like that with more kind of uniformity across the stage. So it would be really, really cool. But that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just was curious if anybody realized that. I was just throwing that out there. Some of you are like, what does this have to do with being together? I don't understand. Like, I'm not following what this guy's talking about. Okay? But, no, let's get back into the message. I just was curious. That was just, like, five people noticed. So, Greg, if you're taking notes, five people, I think, raised their hand. So, there you go. Unity doesn't mean the same. It means you're together. So, what are we together? As a husband and wife, as a couple, as a relationship, what are we striving to be together in or with? Well, the reality is that we are together on mission. If you're taking notes, unity does not mean the same. It means you're together, and we're together on mission. We're together on mission. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go over to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. We're going to read just a couple verses here. If unity is what we're striving for, we're one in Christ, we're one in the flesh, We've been brought together under a union before God. What does that unity mean? What means we're together? Together on mission. Romans chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. Okay, so Romans 16, verses 3 through 5. This is the Apostle Paul. He's concluding the book of Romans with chapter 16. This is the last chapter in the book. And uh, he's given a lot of different thank yous and greetings and different things of that nature. So look at verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. This couple, 
is demonstrating what it looks like to live together on mission. What do we learn about this couple very quickly? Well, obviously, they are very much committed to Christ. They're committed to the church. They have fruit that Paul is recognizing. He's thanking them for how they've given themselves for him and for the ministry. But also notice verse 5. It says, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Now, they're not pastors. They're just, their home is where the local church met together. This was common in the early church. They wouldn't have buildings like this. This type of gathering wouldn't have happened until a couple hundred years later when the Roman Empire got involved and they started building these big basilicas and these big churches and things like this. So early on in the church, the church would gather together in homes. And usually it was either in the home, the main part of the home, or they'd have a separate room off to the side. And that was like where the church would meet and gather together. So they are so committed. They've opened up their home to the church. They're committed to Christ. They're surrendered to Paul. They're all about his ministry and all that God is doing. And I love this because this is an amazing example of a couple, of a husband and wife living together on mission. Two individuals, still unique, but united in a common mission. They're together on mission. Obviously, this is not the only way that this can look in a couple's life because a couple can live on mission together in many, many ways. We can do this by having the same ministry as husband and wife. We can do this as being in ministry together, but doing different aspects of ministry together as husband and wife. We can serve together in our communities. We can be involved together on mission, but doing different aspects of that in the community. One example I think of in our church is a couple that many of you maybe know, and maybe some of you don't know, would be Jason and Jen Koning. Jason and Jen Koning work together to lead our elementary age junior church class And they work together as husband and wife, encouraging the kids, teaching the kids the Word of God, loving on those kids, spending time with those kids. And to be honest, it's been amazing to watch them grow individually, as a couple, and in the ministry. And I don't say that to embarrass them. I mean, they're obviously next door. But when I think of Jason and Jen and what they committed to as husband and wife to serve together. Now, let me say this. I know that's not the only couple that serves here at North Goodland. I know it's not the only husband and wife that serves. We have many couples that serve together or serve in the same ministries, but different aspects or serve in different ministries altogether. We have some couples that serve together one-on-one. We have some couples that maybe the wife or the husband can be more involved in certain ministries where the other one can't be just yet. We have amazing couples that are serving here at North Goodland, and I understand that. But when I thought about this and I was typing, I was like, man, Jason and Jen just came to my mind. They just popped in my head, and I think about what they're doing. And that's what it is to be together on mission. We're about this thing together. We're not individually trying to just figure this thing out. We're coming together and encouraging each other. We're looking for ways to serve as husband and as wife, as individuals, yes, but together on mission. Also, it means being together in purpose together in purpose. And you might say, what's the difference there? Well, I'll show you the difference. Together on mission and together in purpose. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Turn there with me real quick. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. We see an example of a couple uh, that were open and serving and, and ministering to the church and ministering to Paul and doing great things for the glory of God. But in order to be together on mission, we have to understand that we need to be together on purpose together in purpose. Matthew 28, verse 19. We actually unpacked this here a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night, and it was amazing to kind of walk this out, this idea of the Great Commission. But I want to look at this in the context of husband and wife, but also as individuals. Verse 19, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, a couple things. This is not a suggestion from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a, hey, if you have time, go ahead and do this kind of thing. If you're free on Tuesday or Thursday of this week, go ahead and do this. If you have Sundays available, go ahead and do this. This is a great commission given to the disciples of Christ, the early church, and I believe it's given to us today. The same heart, the same purpose we are given with in the church today. It says, Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, Lord Jesus Christ, teaching them. The first teaching, gospel. Deliver the gospel to them. Teach the gospel to anyone you come across. All peoples of all the world need to know the gospel. Once they've received the gospel, then they are baptized. They are showing their faith. They're testifying of their faith. And then in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things. That's discipleship. That's now that you know Christ. You've been baptized as a follower of Christ. Now let's dive into the word of God and know what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we said it a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night. It's amazing how God has set this whole thing up. So many people will say, well, I can't disciple anybody because I don't really know enough about the Bible yet. I don't really know enough about God's word to take someone else through God's word. I don't really know how to study the Bible. I don't really know how to pray, so I can't really take someone else through that. So when I get that stuff figured out, when I know how to study the Bible really well, and I know how to pray really, really well, then I'll disciple somebody. But could it be, as David Platt mentioned in our, our lesson a couple weeks ago in our Wednesday night group, could it be that the key, that the, the way in which we grow in our knowledge of how to study God's Word, the way in which we grow in understanding prayer, the way in which we know how, what it means to be a follower of Christ, is actually by doing it with someone else? Could it be that that's the grand catch of it all? That God is saying, go disciple. And we're like, but God, I can't disciple if I don't know. And he's like, aha, aha, there it is. Get in God's word. Know what it means to be a follower of Christ for yourself. Now you can lead someone else in that and you'll grow in that relationship. And so this is our purpose. This, this is why we exist on planet Earth, to lead people to Christ, to see them be baptized as a follower of Christ, and make disciples of Christ, that they will in turn do the same thing. This is it. I just don't know what the point of my life is. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. This is it. Acts 1.8, go and be my witness to all the world. You might say, well, but how does that play out? Well, that's where we can get a little creative. Maybe you're a business person. Maybe you're in a certain field. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're a nurse. Maybe you're wanting to go into full-time missions. Maybe you're not really interested in traditional missions, but the idea of going on a two-year or a four-year missions trip, that just really excites you and makes you think, man, I want to do that. However it looks is really kind of, it's not irrelevant but that's the flexible part. That's the part that can be unique to you. If you're a business person and you own a business or you work in a business, then maybe you can look at ways to say, how can I use this business platform to spread the gospel? How can I maybe partner with other businesses in other countries and, oh, look, now I have a reason to go there. And, oh, look, now I can be a missionary there because I'm in the country under this business visa. It's not just about being a church planner and, and being a traditional missionary. It can be those things. Those things are obviously not bad. But it can be so much more than that when we realize this isn't just something some people do in the church. This is not just a commission for the pastor or the missionary or the deacon. This is the call for the church. 
And so if this is the purpose of the church and the purpose of us as followers of Christ in our lives, then why do we think it's so much different when it comes to marriage? You see, we need to be together as husband and wife in our purpose. To be honest, the reason, the reason we need to do this is because God calls us to. It's simple. To be honest, the reason living together on mission and in purpose for Christ is so powerful for a husband and a wife is because it gives us a focus that is beyond us. I want to say that again. To be honest, the reason living together on mission and in purpose, this purpose, for Christ is so powerful for a husband and a wife is because it gives us a focus that is beyond us. Think about this now. We don't have time to fight and argue about how that this or that expectation wasn't being met. Because we have something more important to worry about, something more important to drive us, something more important to lead us as a husband and a wife, and that is the mission and the purpose that God has called us to. We are called to make disciples of all peoples, to make Christ known, to grow in Christ and love him with all of us. And so when you and your wife, you and your husband, or as a single individual, again, not married, but maybe you want to get married one day, as you're thinking about that relationship, do not go into it thinking that, that Christianity or Christ or your purpose as a follower of Christ take a back seat to anything else. No, no, no. That is number one. And I'm promising you, when you're together on mission and in purpose, when something is, is, doesn't happen the way you want it to, when, when an expectation isn't met, we're not going to argue and fight about that because it's silliness. We don't have time for that. We have something more important to be focusing all of our efforts on. Again, if you are here and your spouse is not a believer, please don't think that you cannot live on mission. You can decide today that the call of God on your life to make disciples of all people is vital. It will be tough. But even if your spouse doesn't get it, remember Christ is your number one and your spouse is secondary to Christ. And so you can live on mission and live in purpose even if your spouse does not choose to. By the way, let me just be clear for a minute. This is not just true of individuals that have unsaved uh, husband or unsaved wife. This is true of people where both people are saved. Where husband and wife are both believers, but maybe one doesn't really believe this is the call for their life. They say they're saved, but they don't really care about making disciples. They're saved, but don't really care about going to church. They're saved, but they don't really care about seeing people come to know Christ. It's just not on their radar. Now, they, when I say they don't care, obviously they'll tell you, well, I'm praying about it, and I hope someone reaches them. When they don't care, I mean they don't care enough to do it themselves. That's what I mean. And so for you as a follower of Christ, and you're sitting there thinking, man, I need to be about this life. I need to be about this thinking. And your spouse is like, nah. Kind of more of this casual Christianity. Uh, you don't really need to do all that. I mean, we're saved by grace, right? So we don't need to do all this. It can be tough and discouraging and frustrating, but don't let someone else's apathy rob you of your passion for Christ. Don't let someone else's desire to live a casual Christianity cause you to think that you need to somehow come down to that level. No, you strive after the mission and the purpose you've been given, and you stay focused on what he has called you to. You see, we must be, and we honestly can be, mission-driven in our marriages, as well as devil-beating. So I know what you're thinking. Okay, he just spent that long finishing up last week's. This is new stuff now again. We're getting into the, this was supposed to be a whole sermon originally. So here we go. So when you think about this idea, and I just want to stop here real quick, because I feel like this happens sometimes, and maybe this is just me. 
Don't let everything I just said just be like, oh, yeah, that was good. That's good. Yeah, we should be on mission. Yeah, we should be doing that. And then we go home, right? And we get wrapped up in everything again, and we're like, oh, that sounds good, preacher, but... And then next week, we're sitting and going, man, I'm supposed to be on mission. I'm supposed to be focused. I'm supposed to be driven with a purpose. And I, this whole week, I was consumed with self. Let me just throw it out again. How are you doing with the praying for your spouse thing? And we said that. Lay that spirit or put that, build that spiritual emphasis on that foundation of Christ-centered. Are you, are you connecting to the church the local church with your spouse? Are you, are you making that a point of emphasis in your marriage? Are you praying for, or maybe, again, not a believer, so maybe they don't want to pray with you, but maybe you can pray for them. Maybe you would invite them to a prayer time. Are, are you putting these things into practice? That's what I'm asking. Are you coming to church, hearing a message, and going home and going, that was good, and I'm really spiritual because I heard a good message today? Man, I heard the Bible today, so I must be really spiritual. And I heard even a hard truth today. Oh, no, Pastor, I listen to podcasts. I'm listening to this guy and that guy, and I'm reading this book and that. That's awesome. But are you like the the group in, in James, and you're hearing the word of God, but you're not doing the word of God? Do you know what James says? You're deceiving not others. You're deceiving yourself. And so are you hearing all this and going, oh, that's, oh, man, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or are we applying it? And I don't know if, I was, if that was for anyone here, but I just really felt led to make that point because I feel like we can do this in church. We just kind of, it's just another sermon, another message, another, and I don't want it to be that for us as a church or as couples. We need to be mission-driven, which means we can then be devil-beating. So what, it was, what does it look like? What does it mean to be devil-beating? And I want to put this in the right perspective. So the first thing I want to point out is we must know our enemy. To be devil-beating, we must know our enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5. Go there with me. 1 Peter chapter 5. Very, very popular passage. Many of you have memorized this or you know this. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you get to 2 Peter, it's the book right before that. So 2 Peter is after 1 Peter. So if you get to 2 Peter, go back a book. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verse 8. I got to tell you, I love the sound of God's word, like the page is turning. And I know that some of you are like, well, I'm just spiritual. I have it on my iPad. Like, I just can't hear it. I understand. I'm not judging you. Um, God's word is amazing, whether it's in print or in, on the screen or whatever. However God's word can be communicated to people. But there's something really cool about being at church and just hearing the pages turning, people looking for the passage. I love that. 1 Peter chapter 5. Now I'm going to get an email. You don't think I'm spiritual because I use my iPad. No, I do. I do. You're fine. You're just as spiritual as the rest of us. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. I want to I look at our enemy for a second. But really, I want to take a step back. It's not just an enemy, singular. There's enemies we face. We talked about this. The world, the flesh, and Satan. Those are our enemies. Now, the world does not mean people. What does Paul say? Are other human beings my enemy? Do we wrestle against flesh and blood? So why do we fight and get so mad at other people? Because we're stupid? Did I hear that? Amen! See, if I say that without you saying it first, I look like a bad preacher. But you said it, so we're good. 
Okay, I'm just quoting Lynn Atwell. Okay, I'm just quoting her. It's amazing to me the level of hate in our world today. And it's even more disgusting when the hate comes from believers. Like we're so holy as we stand on our forgiven mountain of sin to judge those who are still in the muck and the mire. And we have a lot of enemies, but man, I think we need to really honestly look at the enemies in the real light and not just blame everything on Satan and everything on culture and say, hey, the world system, the world way of thinking, that's an enemy to the things of God because it's driven with self and pride and those things. That's what I mean by the world, the world's way of looking at things, the world's desires, the world's hungers and passions. We need to be careful. Don't become ours. Then we have, obviously, the enemy, Satan, who Peter speaks about here, and we'll get to him in just a moment. But I also believe we have another enemy, and that is our flesh. So we must know our enemies, really. See, the devil attacks with distraction and seduction. Some of you need to write that down. I need to know that. The devil attacks with distraction and seduction. He is the best at misdirection, getting us to look one way and not see the chaos that lies in wait. The devil tempts externally, while our flesh or our sin nature tempts us from within. These two work in unison to try and seduce us into turning away from the truth of God's word and trusting in our own lusts and desires. James chapter 1. Go there with me. I know we're looking at a lot of scripture. I want to go to James chapter 1 though. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Again, I I know we're talking about the devil beating part of the series, but I want to make sure we're clear that, that we can't blame Satan for everything. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no man say, verse 13 of James 1, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Notice I didn't list God among our enemies. He's not our enemy. He's not desiring to lead us into sin. He tries us unto righteousness, but he does not tempt us to sin. Verse 14. So we know God is not tempting us, but listen to what James says. But every man, not some men, not that guy and this guy and that woman, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That doesn't necessarily mean physical death. And you can study that out for yourself. It's amazing what James is saying there. But the point is, it's destruction. It's bad things come from sin. But what is the key I want to focus in on here? Everyone is what? Of his own lusts and enticed. We cannot just blame Satan as if we have no part in the decision to sin. When Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3, God held each one of them accountable for their own parts. Notice that now. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, God held each one of them responsible. Did he hold Satan responsible? Yes. Not a trick question. He held Satan responsible in Genesis 3. Did he hold Eve responsible for her part in the sin? Did he hold Adam responsible? See, God is not going to go, okay, Adam and Eve, Satan, he's kind of a jerk, I know. Like he deceived you. Man, that's a really, that's a bummer. You guys are free and clear. I'm going to really focus all my attention on him. No, no, he says, listen, you had a part in this too because there was something that you chose to do. You made a decision. See, God held them all accountable 
Yes, we have an enemy opposed to God and therefore opposed to us. But if we merely try and focus on, quote, praying against Satan and not abide in Christ so that our flesh is weakened and our spirit is strengthened, we will fail. If we spend all our time just merely trying to fight, quote, against Satan and battle against Satan and, oh, we're going to fight Satan, right? Super soaker in hand, let's go get the gates of hell. We're going to put it down. If we spend all our time doing that, and we don't abide in Christ, which means abiding in his word, so that our spirit is strengthened and our flesh is weakened, we will fail every single time. This failing does not mean that we lose our salvation, but it does mean the potential for the very serious and harmful consequences. However, the wonder of grace is that in Christ we have victory over our sin nature, We have victory over our flesh. Write it down. We don't have time to turn there, but Romans chapter 6 gives us a beautiful picture of this. It says that we are dead to sin, and therefore we are then free to live for Christ. Not only do we have victory over sin, but also, so that's one enemy. We have victory over sin. I didn't mention the scripture, mention it, but the world, God has already had victory over the world, right? Christ has already won over the world. He's already had victory over the world. In Romans 6, sin is dead to us. Our sin nature is not controlling of us. We're free to live unto Christ. But also Satan, the enemy that we kind of started talking about, he's already defeated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Some of you aren't excited about that. I'm pretty excited about that because I can't wait for the day that he gets what's coming to him. Just being honest. Because you know what? It's, 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 It's tiring to live in a world where he is free to tempt us. It is tiring, and it is wearisome. I mean, it's bad enough we have to battle with the internal stuff that we battle with and the desires that come up from within, but now we got this guy out here creating all these opportunities for sin, all these temptations to say, hey, listen, come on in, come on in, come on in. And again, put it in the right perspective. We don't just look at Satan and go, oh, man, if he could just be taken care of, we'd be fine. No, we would still sin because we have that sin in us. So we realize God is through Christ giving me victory over my sin nature. I have not conquered myself or my flesh. He has done that. Crucified with Christ, my sin nature has been. And now I know that Satan is already defeated. Now we know he is defeated already, but he is still free to roam and tempt us. And he's that lion that attacks us and tries to persuade us into sin. But I want you to know something. He will never get victory over you. Not full victory. You might say, well, I don't know about that, man. I was tempted and I gave in. I'm not saying he won't get a temporary win, but victory has already been won in Christ. He may win the little battle down here one day, but he has lost the war. The war is done. Christ has set you free. And he may tempt you and he may try to delude your thinking and confuse you, but you are in Christ. You are protected from him. He cannot win against you as far as eternity is concerned. And so if he's already been defeated and you know we've already won, then why do we give him so much of our daily lives and thoughts? Why do we surrender to someone that's already defeated? Go to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. I believe this is the last verse we're going to turn to. I'm going the wrong way. I'm going to Peter. Romans chapter 16. We were there a little while ago, and if you marked it, hopefully you can just flip a little page and you're there. But Romans chapter 16, look at verse 20. 
Now, again, I already gave you kind of the bigger context of Romans 16. Paul is merely just listing some greetings and some salutations and things like this at the end of his letter. And we get to verse 20, which jumps off the page. Romans 16 and verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I love that verse. Man, I love that verse. I absolutely love that the Apostle Paul, while wrapping up one of, if not the most theologically deep letters he ever wrote, just throws in among his greetings a statement that many of us most likely just read right past. And if you look at what's going on here, he's saying, hey, thankful for this person and for that person and the obedience here and the obedience there. Oh, and by the way, and by the way, just going to throw this out there in verse 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. It's an amazing and powerful passage. Paul says that the God of peace will, quote, bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The word bruise is the word for tread down. Tread down. Or more specifically, to put Satan underfoot as a conqueror, to, quote, trample on him. To break down, to crush, to tear one's body and shatter one's strength. That's what Paul was saying. I mean, we read that and we go, okay, great, we'll win one day. That is not all that Paul was saying. Paul's saying, don't you get it? Don't you understand that shortly? Did you see he said that? I love that, shortly. It's been a while since this was written, right? I don't think I would call when Paul wrote Romans to now a short amount of time. Why does he say shortly? Because from God's point of view, it's shortly. Man, you're going you're gonna to go through a season where he's going to be able to be that, quote, roaring lion. By the way, his bark is much worse than his bite, let's be honest. Because you know why I can say that? Because we won. He's going to roar and tempt and, oh, and you're going to go, oh, my God's bigger. My God's greater. I'm not saying we don't use the right way of realizing he is an enemy. And we need to be aware of his attacks. I'm not denying that at all. We need to be aware of that. But when he comes roaring like this giant lion, you just remind him of the lion of Judah. And your lion will always defeat him as a lion. It's not even, it's not even close. Remember, Satan and God are not equals. It's not like two equal eternal forces battling for good and evil. No, God has allowed Satan to roam through the earth and to tempt. And you might say, well, why? Why? Because he wants us to choose, all the way back in Genesis 3, he wants us to choose him. And when we choose him, he says, I'll set you free from all of that. I'll set you free from all of that. He says that I will crush Satan. I will tear his body and shatter his strength. And he seems pretty strong right now, God. And God is reminding you, oh, no, 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 no. And by the way, who's Paul writing this to? To the church. He's saying, man, you as believers, Satan is really actually under your feet. But is that where we usually put Satan? No, we put him way up here. Oh, we're really, oh, I'll be honest with you. I'm aware of Satan. I know he's out there tempting. I know he's an enemy. I know we need to use sober thinking about this. I know we need to guard ourselves. But I'm just being honest with you, based on the confidence I have in God's word and the gift of grace of Christ, I do not fear Satan. Because perfect love casts out all that includes him. And you know how else we can say that? What does Romans 8 say? What can take away the love of Christ? 
Can principalities or powers or rulers? Can darkness? Can anything created take away the love of God from those in Christ? Guess what? Satan was created. So we need to come at this the right way. This is an amazing truth that Paul gives us. We have nothing to fear from a defeated enemy. Yes, we need to be aware of his attacks and be sober in our thinking because he is real and active. He's not the little cartoon character that we've seen in uh, media. He is real and he is active and he is an enemy and he is going to come after us at times in our lives. He's going to try to attack us. I'm not denying that. But to be sober in our thinking means to think clearly. That's what the word actually means. When Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, be aware and think clearly. Think clearly. So let's think clearly about this, taking into account everything with a calm spirit. That's also part of the definition for sober thinking. It means to be clear in your thinking and have a calm spirit while thinking about that thing. There's no anxiety. There's no stress. I'm not getting worked up about this because I'm calm and clear-minded. So let's be clear. He has already lost. He can try and allay accusations about you at the feet of Christ. But because you are in Christ and your sins are forgiven, God has chosen to not allow your sin to influence his heart toward you. Nothing will turn God against you. So Satan can try to accuse you, try to come to God and say, well, he's this and she's that. And God's point of view will be they are in Christ and I will not change my view towards them because their sin is not being held against them. Satan is a limited, defeated, created being that is no rival to our God. He is a limited, defeated, created being that is no rival to our God. So how are we going to be devil-beating in our marriages? We think clearly about our enemies. I know my flesh is going to tempt me, so I'm clear-minded and calm. God, you've given me strength and victory over my sin. I don't have to give in. Give me awareness and wisdom and how to live. I see the enemy, Satan. I'm calm. I'm sober-minded. He's there. He's going to attack me. I see his attacks are misdirection, right? Distraction and seductions. The grass is greener. That's one of his lines, right? Just come on over here. You have fun. Allow this or that thinking into your life. Deny the word of God. I mean, he didn't really say that. He doesn't really mean that. God, Satan will always attack the word of God, so we abide in Christ. We abide in his word, believing it's the word of God, and we will not be susceptible to that attack. We need to be clear about this. He is an enemy, but we're devil-beating because we realize he's already been defeated. He doesn't have to have control over you or power over you or victory over your marriage. We are focused on Christ. We're aware of our enemies, but we're focused on Christ. Which leads me to ask a question that I think is pertinent to this discussion, and I hope it encourages you in some way to do some self-evaluation. Knowing all of that and knowing we do need to be aware of the attacks that come, where are you most vulnerable to spiritual attacks? See, I said all that to say this. He's defeated, but he's still there. So where am I vulnerable in my personal life, in my marriage, in my relationships? Where am I vulnerable to his attacks? If you want to say this way, where's the armor a little weak in some areas? Now, this doesn't mean I need to get stronger and get better and have a better defense. No, no, no. It means I mean to be driven to the cross. I just go back to abiding in Christ. God, you know this is a weakness in my life. You know that I've been tempted in this area before. You know that this is a temptation of mine. And Satan may try to use this to attack me or come against me. And I pray that you would give me strength and wisdom and victory over this. We're just aware. And when we're aware, we can allow God 
to give us encouragement and strength in that area. In our marriages, we are united as one. We are not the same. We are together on mission and together in purpose. We are striving for a healthy and Christ-like marriage. We may not see eye to eye on everything with our spouse and the little things. Shocker, I know. Some of you are like, I can't believe you just said that. That's never happened. We may not see eye to eye on everything with our spouse and the little things, but we will agree that the goal of our marriage is not merely circumstantial happiness, but unity. See, we can disagree on the little things. We can see things a little bit differently in everyday life. But the goal of our marriage must be not happiness, but unity. The enemies without, Satan, and our enemy within, the flesh, will try and distract and seduce us into thinking that we are missing out, quote, by not giving into this or that. That we're missing out. And it's not really worth giving up that what you're missing out on for what you have. You think you're happy, but man, if you had this, then you'd really be happy. And we are so tempted to, to make that exchange. The reality is every single person I've ever talked to that has made that exchange, that's taken the 80 that they have and given it for the 20 they think they're missing, will always lose. And they've always told me that. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I did that. I don't know what was going on in my head. And Satan didn't get in there and make you do it, by the way. That's another one. Well, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. He created an opportunity. He opened the door. He, he allowed this temptation to be there. But you, in your flesh, made a choice. Again, go back to the Genesis 3. God never says, okay, Adam and Eve, you're free of any responsibility because Satan was involved. Now, he might tempt you. And he, by the way, will tempt you. But we have to understand we have victory from the enemy without Satan and the enemy within from the flesh. Do not fall for the trap. Do not believe the lie that to give up on what you have will be better over there on the other side of the fence. It's not. It's not. Abide in Christ. Know who you are and stay focused on that reality. If your spouse is not a believer and this is hard for you to hear, I would encourage you to pray for wisdom and the words to say that would encourage them to realize the value and truth of the unity that you share. When it comes to your mission as a follower of Christ, pursue that with everything because he is number one in our lives. We pursue him with everything. Our marriages, our personalities, our finances, our talents, our homes, our possessions. It's all his. Your marriage is not even yours. It's his. Your children are not yours. They're his. And when we live that way, surrendered in all things, giving God, as we talked about in a blank check, man, the, the wonders that will come for that are amazing. And so how are you living on mission this week with your spouse? How are you living in purpose with your spouse, but then also, what areas of your life are you vulnerable to spiritual attacks? What areas of your life do you feel like might be open to that? Maybe you pray for wisdom and guidance and how to guard against those things. Whether it's time spent on the computer, whether it's time spent with certain people, whether it's time spent doing certain activities, whatever it is, God, give me wisdom in this that I would avoid a temptation or an opportunity to be tempted. I know it will happen and it can happen. Give me wisdom to think and remind myself of who I really am in Christ and that I don't have to give in. You've already won. You've defeated my flesh and you've defeated Satan. I only need to live for you. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we come before you today. And I know that there was a lot of information given today.
I just pray that you, Holy Spirit, would, would take what was said today and apply it to our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that everything that was said today would glorify you and you alone. I pray that I didn't get in the way of what you were trying to do. I pray that I didn't confuse or mislead people in what it really means to be a follower of Christ. Father, I pray that you would just be the the one that would be leading us and guiding us in all these things. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your salvation. I thank you that we have victory over the flesh in Christ. That, that sin is dead to me and I don't have to give in as an individual and therefore I can really be the husband that I need to be in my marriage and the dad that I need to be to my kids. I thank you that you've already given us victory over Satan. I know, Lord, that he is a, an enemy that is an adversary that is, that is seeking to devour and destroy lives and, and cause great destruction but I'm so thankful that we can be aware of that. We can be guarded against that. We can make sure that we are, as Paul says, under the armor of God in Ephesians 6. But that I pray, Lord, that we would be calm and sober in our thinking, clear in our understanding of just because he's there and he's an enemy and he's going to attack us does not mean that he will gain victory over us. He can attack us, and he can attack us, and he can attack us. He can come after us. He can come after the church, but the church still stands. The gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so I pray that we would, yes, be aware, but I feel like in Christianity today, Lord, that, that in churches today, we've gone so far the other way, that we're, we're living in fear from a defeated, created being I pray you'd give us wisdom in this. Help us to walk this out in a balanced understanding, to be guarded, yes, to be wise, but to realize that you have already won the war and you are over all of this. Use us, Lord, to be on mission this week and live in our purpose. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet as we spend some time in prayer this morning, a time of invitation, would you respond? Again, I invite, as I've had the last couple of weeks, husband and wife, individual. Maybe you want to come and pray and say, God, help me to be the wife or the husband I need to be. Help me to be who you're calling me to be. Would you come maybe as husband and wife or a family or just as an individual and just spend time with the Lord this morning as we pray.